Welcome to Continuum, the International Business Council podcast, where each episode we sit down with an incredible member of the IBC community, dive in, and learn from their journey. Welcome to Continuum, the IBC podcast series. This is John Fitzgerald, and today our guest is John David Yoder. JD, thanks for being with us. Welcome. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. It's absolutely my pleasure. You know, I, and I'm, I'm truly, truly pumped about this conversation in that, you know, the, a question that I'm always asked is, how do I find guests? And it, it's a variety of ways. I may hear a person's name, a recommendation. In your case, I came across your name on LinkedIn and followed up and you replied. And as uh, our conversations kind of developed and evolved, uh, this is perfect. I'm really looking forward to this. And I think our listeners, more importantly, are really going to appreciate um, your insights on both your background, leadership, um, and your career very, very greatly. So, you know, first, just to get going, like, where did you grow up? And then I want to get into education and kind of let the cat out of the bag. You went to Notre Dame, but I want to talk more deeply about that. But, you know, how did you choose Notre Dame? Sure. So I grew up uh, mostly in Elkhart, Indiana. Uh, my Dad was a theologian who uh, later in, in life was teaching at Notre Dame. That's certainly part of what attracted me there. Uh, we travel a lot, a lot when I was a small kid and uh, was really interested in either engineering or philosophy and had a hard time deciding that. So uh, as I was choosing colleges, I was looking at Purdue and Notre Dame and, and MIT, but Notre Dame had the real draw of having strength in multiple areas, not just in engineering. So ultimately, that's what decided it for me. So in engineering is a pretty vast discipline. And and you majored undergrad in mechanical engineering. And, and what was the thought behind that? So I was super fortunate. Uh, I was, uh, I grew up at the right time for my skill set, right? So I I had a paper out, I saved up money and bought a, a desktop computer when that was a real rarity and learned how to program. Uh, won a programming competition when I was at, uh, high, in high school. And that led to a, an automation company hiring me as a software engineer when I was still in high school. Uh, and when I started uh, changing a line of code and saw that a machine worked that used to not work, I was kind of hooked. And uh, what that company really lacked was kind of robotics and mechanical engineers. So uh, it was it was largely saying, well, I kind of enjoy this work. So this is what can help me keep doing that kind of work. It, and you didn't stop, though, with your bachelor's. And, and you, as like I like to refer to people, you're a double domer. And, right. and you, you received your Ph.D. from Notre Dame. Can you talk about that kind of the progression? And you know, did you take time off after your bachelor's or did you just do the continuation? Sure. So great question. And the first thing I'd say is I am definitely not one of the people that uh, had a clear plan in life and have followed that plan to the letter. You know, I, I started as an undergraduate, certainly never expecting to do graduate school. Uh, I never expected to run a business, probably never even thought much about being a leader as a, in my early days of undergraduate experience. Um, I kind of accidentally started a business. We can talk more about that later. But um, my junior year, a lot of faculty started saying you should consider graduate school. And uh, the 
woman I was dating at the time, who's now my wife, um, has been since 1991, uh, was definitely interested in going to graduate school. So that helped shape it as well, that it made sense for us both to go together. So she went to Goshen College undergraduate, but we both ended up at Notre Dame for graduate school. So there was no time in between, uh, but I was kind of running a business on the side at the time. So talk about you know your business, which is still an ongoing entity today, and then we're going to get into more like specifically what you do on more of a day-to-day basis. But talk about that that formulation of your business, like what what you do with it, you know, what you did with sure. it then, and how it's evolved today. So um, the the company I mentioned that hired me in high school, uh, about halfway through my college life, uh, decided to change directions and not build as many machines anymore and just sell equipment and. Two of the customers that I had been working with uh, reached out directly to me and said, well, will you just work for us directly? Um, so I started doing that and then had to meet with an accountant. And, and they let me know if you're, if you're going to do this for tax reasons, you really need to start a company. I did that. Uh, I grew that during graduate school. I did it full time for several years after. So we did factory automation and robotics research, largely for uh, paper mill industry, automotive, and then we worked with NASA as well. So uh, it's a lot of fun. But in terms of my life, it got to a point where um, I guess the direction of that company and growth and time it was taking didn't really match up with my values and, and kind of led me to get out of most of that business. I sold most of it to some of my employees. And then what did you do at that point for your career? So I went to work for a large company. Uh relatively large uh, company called Grobe Systems, which is headquartered in Germany, a global company that makes, uh, odds are your your car's engine and transmission are made on their equipment, and now they're doing electric motors as well. And I did that for about three years, uh, really enjoyed the work, enjoyed the people I was with, but got a sense that, um, you know, it was, a, it was a time in my life when I was starting to understand the value of connecting my values and what I cared about with my work um, rather than just wanting a job that paid me well and gave me good benefits. And that led me to come back to academia. Um, and fortunately, I was able to do that. So talk about that, J.D., in regard to the whole academic education thing, because for those that are listening and, and not seeing this, you, know, you have your Ohio Northern University shirt on, College of Engineering. And if I recall correctly, what I read in 2001, you joined Ohio Northern as a professor. That's right. Correct. And was that a a big leap for you going from, you know, the private sector to academia? A huge leap. Yeah, I think um, in two ways, right? One is that the, the default path to academia is to go straight from graduate school or maybe to do a postdoc so that you're continually showing you can do the things that you're going to need to do in in academia, right? You're writing papers, you're raising funds. Um, Very different to have first a small business and then kind of an industrial background and try to make that leap. I was super fortunate that two different universities uh, gave me offers. Uh, One was a large state school, kind of an R1, and one was a high northern, which if you for those who don't know, we're a small, private, undergraduate-focused institution in rural Ohio. And really uh, having both of those offers at the same time gave me time to think about what I really wanted to focus on. And it was really engaging with, with 
young people, right? And trying to make a difference in their lives at a time that was critical for me when I was at Notre Dame as well. I, I really grew up and found myself a little bit at Notre Dame. So the, the chance to be uh, part of that process for young people was really important to me. And so now I want to fast forward probably 15, 16 years. And at that point, I think in, in 2016, 2017, you were named dean of the T.J. Small College of Engineering at Ohio Northern and still in that position today. Talk about you know, that whole process. And and again, was that a, was that a leap? Was it a step? Um, and I think you still have your, your feet on the professor side as well. Yeah. And, you know, how do you how do you keep all that? you know, going? So, you know, I, I, I tell people there's, there's no little kid out there that grows, that says when I grow up, I want to be a dean, right? I mean, most people don't even know what that is. So, um, it, it, again, it certainly wasn't, this is why I got into academia, right? Um, and I guess the other part of the leap going back into academia, I should talk a little bit about is just, you know, salary-wise, it wasn't a very attractive leap either, right? So, I, I've been fortunate that, um, at the times in my life where I realized kind of what I do and wasn't resonating every day with my values, I've had another opportunity come up that, that showed up in ways that, you know, for me, that's maybe more important than the money, right? Um, in terms of taking the leadership role here, I was a department chair for a while. I've been super fortunate, and this doesn't happen to a lot of people, but when I've been ready for leadership opportunities, they've they've appeared, right? Whether that was uh, the business I talked about earlier, but certainly uh, um, when I started thinking, well, maybe I should interview for department chair opportunities, and uh, Northern provided that for me. Uh, I just started interviewing a little bit for dean's positions, and uh, this opportunity came available. So uh, it certainly is a leap because I, I teach a little bit still, but uh, most years not at all. My research program has has stopped, right? So it definitely is a a fork in the road where you're deciding, do I want to keep doing the same kind of thing or do I want to make my primary job running the College of Engineering? Uh, And for me, this has been fantastic, Uh, but it it, uh, looks much more obvious in the rearview mirror than it did when I was looking at the decision that day. So when you became dean, what were the, I'm going to say the the unforeseen, the, the things that you didn't anticipate, those challenges that, that all of a sudden hit you, and and how did you deal with those? So I'll answer the second part first. I I am a networker, and I rely heavily on friends, colleagues, um, when I'm dealing with hard things, right? And so uh, I, I still have a great network of folks across academia, but in industry as well, and um, people who are still kind enough to share their time and insight with me. So that's always my first go-to when I'm in uncharted waters struggling, right? In terms of what some of those things were, I think um, I had, being an internal person has advantages and disadvantages, right? And I think that's probably true regardless of what sector you're in, right? But making sure people understood that just because I had been chair of the mechanical department wasn't going to mean that I was going to be play favorites, right? I mean, it's kind of the coach's kid conundrum, right? <laughs> like, um, and, uh, and also being kind of the intermediary, right? So you're, as a dean, you report to a provost and a president. Um, you have to have the institution's interest at heart, while at the same, at the same time, 
really focusing on making sure that your college is running well, that you're hiring great people, um, that you're providing exactly what you're supposed to be providing to the students in terms of curriculum and experience. Uh, and in, in my case, uh, I know you had Tom Mendoza as a as a guest. You know, he talks about the, the importance of culture, and I've really learned to embrace that and wholeheartedly agree with him that that's a critical part of doing this job. And, and JD, I wanted to talk a little bit about culture, and that's a great segue. So thank you for doing that. When you know, how do you develop a culture? You know, when you stepped in as dean, I mean, there was a culture that was there. But, you know, what did you do? Like, what, what, what are the, I don't want, I'd love to have specifics, and I don't think that's, that's fair to ask you that, but how do you go about developing a culture that's reflective of what you're looking for? Yeah, and so I'll give you, give you my thoughts. I, I don't think it's that there was no culture and then I created a great one, right? Um, my predecessor, still a good friend of mine, actually also a Notre Dame alum, um, had, had started the process of, you know, kind of identifying what's what's special about us, what what are our core values, how how do we operationalize that? And I think what what I've been able to lean into is really what's that distinctiveness? Why do people want to come here, whether it's students or employees, right? And for us, that's really about personal relationships with faculty and staff. Uh, and about big opportunities. So in some case, in some sense, you get the opportunities of a big school with the personal connection of a very small school, right? And so how does that play out in culture? Well, we've gotten better and there's still a lot of room to go, but when we're hiring people, we want to make sure they understand that. And, you know, what I've learned from my personal experience is if you're working at a place where those values don't resonate, you're not going to want to stay there. Right. And so it's, it's my job in the interviewing process to make sure that we're finding people whose values are aligned um, so that they're not kind of forcing themselves into that role, but they're working in a place they can thrive because of that alignment. So in, in, do you still get a chance to and I realize you don't teach as much anymore, but to interface with the students? I do. I mean, one of the, the downsides of my job is I tell people I tend to see the very best students and the ones who are struggling the most, right? The, the students who are, who are doing well and getting by every day don't spend as much time in my office. But uh, there are student organizations that I uh, meet with regularly, um, and we have a, a volunteer core of students that helps us with various events. So I still get to interact with the students in, in that way. And that's always the highlight of, of my work. And going back to what you said, when you were an undergrad at Notre Dame, you had a couple of faculty people who recommended graduate school to you. And do you ever have that opportunity today with students that, that there's that, I don't know what it would be, an intangible, I'm going to call it an intangible, that you see that, and you go make that recommendation that, hey, have you considered grad school? I do. We all, I mean, the faculty who interact with them every day do that as well. And I'm I'm cautious about it because it certainly isn't for everyone, right? Um, a, a lot of our students are um, in a situation, you know, in terms of family background and things where they really need that first job and that income, right? So um, it, it certainly isn't for everyone. But when there's a student with aptitude and interest, and there are, there are times, you know, our students do an awful lot of presentations and I get to sit in on those. And, and some of those you sit in on and you can you get the feeling that person could be a great teacher someday. Right. So in those cases, 
definitely I want to plant that seed that, that that's something they could think about as a, a long-term option. So if you had the chance right now to talk to the JD who's entering Notre Dame as a freshman and knowing what you know now, what would you tell him? Wow, that's a great question. So a, a couple of things. One, I would say you're going to meet people here who are going to be lifelong friends, right? And I I think uh, that's true for a lot of people in college, but I don't think I was confident about that when I stepped onto campus the first day, right? The the other is uh, you don't have to have it all figured out, right? I think that uh, some of my friends did have, you know, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to go into finance and that's, you know, I'm going to go work on Wall Street. And that's great for the people who have that. Knowing in my role now, I know there's only about 20% of of people that can identify their passion at that age and, and live into it, right? But it, it feels like that's the norm sometimes. So I think I would tell myself, it's going to be okay. You don't have to have it all figured out at 18, right? Um, Notre Dame's done a great job for thousands of people over the years of helping them find their path and helping them have hugely fulfilling careers, uh, some financially, some in other ways, some both, right? And I think just trusting that and uh, focusing on the people I was going to meet and, and worrying a little less is probably what I'd focus on. So I'd like you to think, like, just since you entered academia, so since the early 2000s, um, what do you think is, is the most significant way or ways in which college, undergrad, it really helps and transforms students into you know, well-rounded and, you know, positive citizens in society? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give a first answer. And if you want to go deeper, I'm glad to, because I spent a lot of time thinking about this, right? There's definitely a part of the public as a narrative right now that higher education isn't worth it. It's a waste right. of time. There's too much debt. And, you know, all, all the financial data is, that's not right, right? It's still a great investment, but it's not only for financial reasons that it's a great investment, right? Um, if you're a college graduate, you live longer on average, right? By four or five years. Um, you tend to have more job satisfaction, right? So, so why does all that happen in college? I think our country has a pretty amazing system. First, there's lots of different kinds of colleges people can choose from with different specialties, different sizes, right? But you're spending uh, a prolonged period of time with a bunch of people your age that are all kind of growing up together, right? And that doesn't happen after you leave college for most people, right? Some tech companies in Silicon Valley, yeah, you have a bunch of 25 to 30-year-olds, but most places you're going to have a whole range of ages, specialties, right? But in college, you've got this group that are asking hard questions together, growing up together, facing hardships together, right? And forming bonds and getting through those experiences. Um, that's amazing. And then in, in the U.S., the, you know, almost every institution is going to have some kind of general education core. So it's not just about the professional education. Uh, you know, at Notre Dame, we had to take religion and philosophy classes, and I loved those classes. Um, and those led to great conversations at, at midnight with classmates, right? So um, I think there really is a, a special sauce in bringing motivated young people together, having them spend those four years together, living together, uh, caring about each other deeply and, and going through that growing up process together while being exposed 
to great ideas and great education and great opportunity. So based on that, J.D., now I want to take it and make it more for your insight. You know, when you were in school, whether it was undergrad, grad school, getting your doctorate, what are some what do you think that the really key valuable skills are that you learned that help put you where you are today? Yeah. So that's a great question. And I, I think my first answer is going to be most of those things weren't in classes. Right. Which as a professor is a little bit humbling to say. Right. But I think uh, we could talk more about the future of education, too. But I think for me personally, I gained a ton of confidence at Notre Dame. Uh, I learned to be able to talk to people uh, that I didn't know, right? Um, I uh, I am Christian, but I'm not Catholic. And so I was able to talk to people about my faith, right, in ways I hadn't had to do before I went to Notre Dame. And the, Notre Dame had two things that as an 18-year-old, I, I wouldn't have known would be important to me, but when I got there were critical to me. One is how they do housing, right? So, um I lived in St. Edwards Hall. That became a, a, a band of brothers for me, right? And, and I'm still friends with many of those people. So in, in some sense, getting the the community of a fraternity without the hazing and the rushing was huge for me in terms of my confidence and, and relationship building, right? The other is um, people are competitive, but not at your expense, right? I had friends who went to other schools I won't name, but, but highly... Uh, highly thought of institutions, and people would not help each other outside of class. You know, they they wouldn't get together and work together unless they were in the same frat or had some other affinity. In fact, they would, if anything, they would try to steer you the wrong way, right? Because what was most important to them wasn't anything about community. It was about me first. And uh, so for me, those two things, kind of the, the living housing situation the built-in community that way, but then the broader community of we're all in this together, we're all working together, I'm going to lift you up rather than I'm going to succeed by pushing you down, were, were critical for me in my personal development and my confidence building. Have you been able to carry any of those aspects over to Ohio Northern? I mean, that that sense of community and the support, and, yeah. you know, it, which I love what you said, it's not at the expense of each other. I, I think the sense of community is is here. Um, I, it's probably not quite as strong, frankly, because we don't have that housing component. But and we don't have the the shared. Um, we're a Methodist affiliated school, but not kind of with the level of of missional alignment or closeness, I guess, that Notre Dame has around faith. Right. So I think Notre Dame, that's another advantage that Notre Dame has. But we certainly have a strong sense of community. Certainly, our students in the College of Engineering think of themselves as a, as a close-knit community. We've built a building that's new with all kinds of community space inside right. the academic building, right? Something that certainly didn't exist when, when I was in college. Um, so yeah, I think that piece is critical here as well. And if honestly, if it didn't have that culture when I showed up, I wouldn't still be here, John. And, and you, a few moments ago, JD, you talked about kind of the, the whole future of education. I mean, where do you see education going, evolving into in the next, I'm going to say five years, maybe 10 years, and they might be pushing it a little bit too much. Sure. Well, two things I should say. I think there's a public perception sometimes that higher ed hasn't changed at all, right? The the ivory tower metaphor. The reality is we've changed an awful lot since I was in school, 
right? Um, engineering education is much more project-based, much more hands-on, much more team-based, right? Which are all things that industry wants. Uh, we've also worked here at Ohio Northern with uh, something called Keen, the current entrepreneurial engineering network, um, which we were one of the 12 schools that started that network. Now there's about 60 schools talking about why projects matter, right? We think of engineers and we think of Dilbert. We think of a guy sitting at his desk waiting for a problem to show up and then you solve it and then you wait for the next problem to show up, right? And I think, sadly, there was some truth to that 30 years ago, right? It's uh, We want our students to have what we call the entrepreneurial mindset, which basically means they understand why that project matters and how it's going to add value for somebody, right? So I think you're going to see more and more of that, right? A focus on relevance of the classes you're taking and how the work you do can add value for people. On a, on a broader scope, um, we have worked hard here at ONU to, to, in the College of Engineering to say that we are not in the content delivery business. And I think universities need to figure that out in a hurry, right? Because the content is all available free online at this point, right? If you look at an engineering course, you can find the textbook online, right? You can work your way through it. There's probably videos that can help you work your way through it. Right. So what's the value we're adding when the content has been democratized, basically? Right. So in our case, and I think different universities will answer that in different ways. Right. I have friends at Arizona State. They're going to answer that in a very different way than, than I am at Ohio Northern. Right. But so for us, the value proposition is going to be the, the experience, not the content. Right. So you're going to get one on one access to that faculty member. You're going to have small classes so you know everybody in your class. Uh, again, building that community, right? If you if you need help, you're going to know the other people in your class. Um, you're going to do a ton of hands-on projects. You're going to work in teams, right? You're going to have terrific opportunities to get internships and, and then high job placement, right? So I think we, we've been pretty good at that. We have more work to do, but I think the whole sector is going to have to um, realize, right, where the content delivery business is not really the the higher ed model that's going to work long term, in my opinion. And I, I want to switch a little bit and I want to talk a little bit about leadership. And, you know, from your perspective and the role that you are as dean, uh, how much influence do you have on both going up, you know, the overall school for Ohio Northern, as well as going down to the student level from, you know, affecting their view of leadership and in their view of education perspective moving forward? That's that's a great question. That's a big question, right? So I, I think, um, let me answer it two ways, right? When people ask me what my job is as dean, my, my first response is, it's my job to hire great people and get them the resources they need to, to accomplish the mission of the college and the university, right? Um, so the, the biggest way I have an impact on students is to make sure they've got great faculty and that those faculty aren't worried about if there's a piece of equipment they need, they're gonna get it, right? If if the students, if they wanna take students on a great field trip to see a construction project, they, they can do that, right? So that's the number one way that I, that I would say I affect the students is indirectly by making sure they've got great faculty who can do what they want. Um, a, a little more broadly, I do think I mentioned this earlier about higher ed in the U.S., right? I think I think there's a great menu of schools to choose from. And a big part of my job is to make sure that it's obvious to people what's different if they come here, right, as a student or as an employee. 
And uh, and again, I, th- this is certainly not something my 18 year old self would have known, right? But I think I think you want your employees, and certainly we want the students to thrive, right? Not to survive. And I think um, helping them be in the right place off of that menu, if you will, I don't want to overuse that analogy, but is is a huge thing we can do to help people thrive. So now take leadership and let's let's go down the funnel a little bit and specific mm-hmm. to you. Uh, I, I'm sure there's people that have you know been great leaders in your mind. And if you could just share with us, uh, you know, some of those people, be it on a personal side, on a professional side, and and why they had such an influence on you from a leadership perspective. Thank you for that question. I think um, I will start with my very first boss at that automation company when I was 15 years old, right? He, um, I got a little overwhelmed one day and people were telling me to do all kinds of different things. And he, he stepped in, the president of this company, and was in my corner, right? And I think that experience uh, gives me a lot of empathy with um, employees or students who are struggling, right? Like just, just knowing that I will listen and back them up and support them, I think is probably the most important thing I do, right? Um, I think there are pretty amazing higher ed leaders out there. Two I'll single out. There are way too many for me to do them justice, but President uh, Crow at Arizona State um, has uh, in big letters in the middle of campus that uh, Arizona State will be measured by who they include and not by who they exclude. Right. And he has really built an institution around that, which, right, historically, the, re- the reason that's a big statement, right, is historically we rank schools by how many people they exclude. Right. What's your acceptance rate? What's your SAT profile? Right. And for him to just intentionally turn that on its head and show a different model, I, I think is, is inspiring to me. Right. We uh, we have great outcomes for our students, our return on investments among the top hundred of all the universities in the state. I mean, sorry, all the universities in the country. Right. Um, but if you just rank us by our student profile, we wouldn't be anywhere near that high. Right. So I'm, I'm inspired by the this idea that we, we're going to include people that maybe couldn't get into some schools and still give them the support and education they need to change their lives and their families' lives for generations. Right. Uh, president Hrabowski was at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Both of them were presidents for a long time. President Hrabowski stepped down recently, um, did an amazing job of, of on a similar line of providing access to students that maybe didn't have access before. And it, um, he taught me a lot about uh, I've been fortunate to see both of these folks speak in, in a small setting. Right. And he talked about the importance of, of data. Right. And. We need, it, it can seem obvious, but, you know, he, he did a, a study, for example, of students who came in with AP Calc, right? So advanced placement calculus, it means you can start in the second semester if you did well enough on the test. But he found that those students that were starting the second semester weren't succeeding and nobody had really looked at that before. Why? Because maybe that second semester in college is a little harder than that AP class met, right? And there's a wide variety of what AP classes look like across the country. So you're actually um, putting your students at a disadvantage by having them start ahead, right? And that changed our policies here. 
So those those are two people in higher ed that come to mind immediately. And in some sense, they're both about access and doing everything you can to ensure that the students you have have the highest chance of success. And now right? I'm going to twist that a little bit, J.D., yeah, and I didn't, I didn't prep you on this one. No, but from leaders, I mean, how about mentors? You know, how do you view, you know, mentors to you and you being a mentor to others? Thank you. Um, that, that first boss in high school, uh, I'm still in touch with him. I would definitely call him a mentor. Um, my, my brother is more than 10 years older than I am. He's also an engineering educator. He's been at the University of Tennessee for most of his career. Uh, and he's always been a, a mentor of mine from, you know, from the little days when he was beating me up on the basketball court to today. Um, you know, in terms of my ability to mentor, I've really been humbled in the last few years. I was at a conference um, less than a year ago, and one of the activities was they asked everybody there to write down the name of a mentor, and then uh, there was a time of sharing who those people were. And and one of the people in the in my small group of about thirty people had put my name up, and I was just kind of dumbfounded by that. Right? I, Congrats! It, in my in my mind, that person is way ahead of me and has done amazing things. And to, um, there are several people uh, who I work with here or I work with at other places who have also put that label on me, which is really, really humbling. Um, because I very much like what I said about my early career, it's not like I've set out to be a mentor, right? I just, I, I think I set out to be in people's corner and to listen. And I'm, I'm pretty good at being empathetic. Um, and over time, I guess that becomes mentorship, right? <laughs> I, Correct. I, I, I wish I probably had been more intentional about that, but I think uh, it, it's kind of happened despite me in some sense. So what do you think people should do to, to better solidify their careers? I mean, based on your experience, I mean, is there anything that, you know, on that intangible side that w- what you've come across and you've seen that is kind of boiled up that, hey, this is maybe what I think people need to have a more focus in to solidify their career. So certainly the thing I hadn't thought about at all in college, but evolved over time, right, is make sure you know what really matters to you. And that that may seem trite, but if, you know, if, if it's money, that's fine, right? That makes your career path pretty clear. But for me, it kind of felt like the default was you're supposed to go try to make a bunch of money, but it didn't make me happy, right? And I I, I learned that quicker than some people, uh, right? I tell people I've changed jobs really twice in my life, and both times there was a big pay cut involved, right? So be careful about ask, be careful about asking me for career advice. Um, but for me, in both cases, it was definitely the right move. I, I grew as a person, uh, and I've been much more fulfilled at each step. That doesn't mean there was anything wrong with those previous jobs, right? Just for me personally, fulfillment came from um, figuring out what was important to me and then working in that sector and, and focusing on that. The the other thing I think, uh, and I, I'm sure you've heard this from, from lots of others, right? Like be willing to change your mind, be willing to listen, uh, be vulnerable, right? Admit that you make mistakes. There's, there's a tendency to think that once you're the boss, you're not supposed to make mistakes anymore uh, or admit them. And and boy, I've just found people are so um, willing to help if you're willing to admit you need help, right? 
And um, that, that's not the stereotype of what a leader is supposed to be, I think, but uh, hopefully that's changing, right? And I know that I'm sure that you've heard these things from, from other leaders. So I think if, if you make sure you understand what uh, is important to you and you listen to other people and you don't pretend to have all the answers, you're willing to change your mind in, in the, in the, if new evidence comes forward, I think you'll do well. While, while I certainly have been very privileged to hear a lot of people, what, what people say in regard to leadership, that was really poignant. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the IBC, the, the whole reason mm-hmm. we're here, which we're the Alumni Association of the SIBC, the Student International Business Council, um, three different chapters of the SIBC at, at Notre Dame, University of San Diego, and Benedictine College mm-hmm. in Atchison, Kansas. And you know, our mission is similar to that of the SIBC. And I'd, I'd love to get your take, your thoughts on our mission. And I'm going to read it to you, and I'll, I might put the, the question in a different context. So our mission is to create a world where the business community acts as a principled force for the common good globally. And again, just kind of your perspective of that and how you would kind of apply that bigger picture to maybe what you do now on a daily basis, but just in a personal level, how you uh, internalize that. So first, I think that mission's phenomenal, right? I think that uh, I, I'm a huge believer in uh, free market. Um, I, I think that businesses have amazing influence. And I think that those three universities working together to try to create the next generation of business leaders with that focus in mind can make an enormous difference in the world, right? Um, you know, Notre Dame has this great series of commercials about what would you fight for, right? And I think uh, fighting for good is is about as high an aspiration as you can have, right? And I think the, the hard part, right, is that at some point as leaders, the common good and short-term profits may be at odds, right? And so I think helping to develop the character of students so that they can make that hard decision is as important a thing as higher education can do, right? I mean, to me, that's the, the thing I said earlier about, I want our students to understand why a project matters, right? That's because ultimately I want them deciding what projects to work on, right? And if there's if there's a project that's, that's not in the public's best interest, right? That's the last thing you want engineers doing. <laughs> Right. So uh, I, I wholeheartedly uh, applaud that mission. And I, and I do think higher ed has the potential to do it, but I don't think it's easy. And I think sometimes um, sometimes we want we're tempted to give students easy solutions. Right. Problems with where, you know, a case study where there's a, an obvious mistake ethically that somebody made. Um, but I think at, at the heart of those hard decisions, um, it really comes down to their character because it won't always be easy to do what's right for the common good. J.D., kind of a springboard next topic I want to ask about in regard to giving back. You know, How important is it to you to give back to the community? And how do you instill that, in your case, in you know the people that you interface with, be it faculty or students? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll add alumni to that mix because a big part of what I do is work with alumni who are who are interested in giving back, right? So, and and the first thing I'll say is um, some people when they hear giving back assume donations, right? But there are lots of ways to give back, right? Uh, time, uh, expertise, um, 
rallying other volunteers, right? There, there, are, there are tons of ways that people can give back. And I think many of the institutions that are critical to this, the future of our country, whether that's higher ed or non-governmental organizations or local charities or United Way, right? Whatever your, your local churches rely on people being philanthropic, right? There's, there's not a, there's not a prospect for long-term success without people giving back, right? Whether that's your local church or local United Way or universities. So, um, I've been a donor to Notre Dame since I graduated, and I'll continue to do that. <laughs> I believe in their mission and believe they provide a great opportunity to change lives. I certainly also a donor here at Ohio Northern because I think what we do is pretty special too, or else I wouldn't be here. Um, you know, we I meet with the seniors at the end of every year just before graduation, and we go over logistics a little bit. But I also do, I you know, I ask them how many how many of them have scholarships? And at our institution, that's almost 100% of the seniors are here because of the scholarship, right? And uh, what our president does, which I started doing as well, is to ask them how many of them know the person that gave them that scholarship. And almost all of them, it's zero, right? Every every year. One year, I had one person who knew, the, the, who had met the person who gave them the scholarship. But so, you know, in some sense, these students' lives are being changed, their families' lives are being changed for the next generation by people they don't know who are willing to give back. And, you know, my hope is that that plants a seed. You know, we don't expect most people to start donating here right away, but whether you're giving to your local church, whatever it is you're passionate about, um, I think becoming a supporter in the way that's possible, right? Again, whether that's time, treasure, or talent, uh, can be fulfilling. And you're making it, it. It's often very tangible that you're making a difference in the lives of people. And uh, I, I, I truly believe that for most people, that means a lot. Very true. So, if you're in a group of students with a group of students, and and whether it's in a, a social situation or an official function as the dean, and you're talking to them, and and they have this, you know, passion to go out and and change the world, but have no idea where to start. What do you tell them? Um, you don't have to figure it out right now, <laughs> right? I, I think we can uh, impact the world in so many ways that uh, trying to figure out, especially, you know, young, young people, um, there are a lot of complaints about the current generation of young people, but I would say they're more interested in having a positive impact on the world than, than my generation was, for sure. And so I'm, I'm excited to see what they're going to do. Right. And I think one thing I do to say in response to that exact question is, as an engineer or computer scientist, you will impact the world all the time. Right. And whether you're working for a company making prosthetics or a company trying to make the electrical grid more efficient, those, those are still they're very different jobs. But in both cases, you're definitely changing the world. Right. And in, in some sense, what engineers and computer scientists do is design the world of the future for us to, to live in, right? And so I think all of them have that ability to change the world. And then the second thing I would say is it will probably feel more relevant to you if instead of changing the world, you change one person's life, right? So if that's a person at your church or a, a soup kitchen or a homeless shelter or, 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 right? Or the colleague at the desk next to you who just lost someone dear to them, right? I mean, you, you can change the lives of people around you 
And often that feels a lot more tangible than making the electrical grid a little more efficient. Sure. Right? Even if even if that one affects millions of people at once, right? Um, being able to help the person next to you is, is a great way to start changing the world. So what are you most proud of in your life so far? Huh. Uh, that's a hard question. Um, I, I am certainly uh, very proud of my son, who's 18 years old and is uh, applying to colleges right now, including two of the schools in, in your organization, San Diego and Notre Dame. Uh, he is, is uh, having a remarkable senior year and mostly, um, I mean, he's doing well in school and on the basketball court and those things, but mostly I'm proud of his empathy and kindness. And I, I, I reacted the way I did to pride because I don't feel like I'm, I have a lot of responsibility for that, but I'm certainly proud of the person he is. Um, and here I'm, I'm proud of the difference that this college makes in the lives of students. Um, you know, some, some of our students would thrive anywhere they, right. They could have gone to sure. any school and they would thrive right. there. Though we certainly have schools. I'm sorry. We certainly have students at the school every year that without that faculty member who reaches out after class and says, everything okay, right? Or uh, you didn't do well on this exam. What's going on? How can we help you? How can we get you through this class? With, without that connection that, that I mentioned earlier, connections and relationships are kind of what we pride ourselves on, uh, probably just wouldn't have been able to make it through. And uh, there's there's nothing better than shaking those students' hands as they walk across the stage uh, in May. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I don't know if you have time, if time permits for you to read much with everything going on, but you know, I, I love to ask if there's any book that you'd like to recommend to our listeners, just be it something you might've read back in high school or college or something most recent, more recent. Yeah. So I, I joke with people that I'm, I'm post-literate. I, I used to read, uh, but I listen to a lot of books now. That's, that's easier for my schedule as I'm driving or flying to, to listen to books. Uh, two recent ones I, I absolutely loved. Um, one was Think Again by Adam Grant, uh, which encourages us to you know think about the things we believe to be true as scientific experiments so that when new evidence comes up, we can reconsider that. And the other was Range. Uh, let me grab the uh, uh, David Epstein is the author. And in some sense, it's a, it's a pushback on hyper-specialization. Right. I think we all know the, the story of Tiger Woods and all the time he spent, even as a really young kid, golfing and obviously made him arguably the, get the best golfer in, in history, but certainly one of the best. Um, and, and that book gives all kinds of examples of how actually having some breadth uh, in your skill set in, in, in a challenging, changing world, actually you, you win long term. Not in every field, right? But in lots of cases. Um, so th those are two recent ones that uh, I would certainly recommend it to anyone who's um, either in a leadership role or thinking about a leadership role at some point. Very much appreciated. And now you to take a deep breath because this is the last question. If you could change one thing in the world, what would it be? Hmm. I would make people a little kinder. Interesting. Um, I, I don't have to think very hard about that. That's fantastic. Some people just, they hesitate on that and don't know. And I, I love that very, very succinct. So thank you. And JD, thank you, big picture, for your time today. This was a, a fantastic use of uh, time. I love your insights. Um, I would like to, if I can ask, 
uh, come back in a while and do like part two, because I think there's a lot of other things I made notes that I would love to get into more detail on. And I, and I think there's, there's much more that you could share with us that uh, our listeners would truly, truly appreciate. Well, I'm, I'm humbled to be asked. I'm glad to chat anytime. I, like I say, I'm, uh, your, your mission resonates with me. I'm still a huge Notre Dame fan. I go to every home football game. Um, so a- anything I can do to help. And I'm, uh, I'm deeply humbled if you think I said anything that's helpful for your listeners. Perfect. Thank you. I wish you the greatest success. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much. John. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Continuum. Please leave us a five-star rating and share Continuum with your colleagues and friends. We need your help in gaining new listeners and growing our following. And for more information on the IBC, visit our website, ribc.com. That's just O-U-R-I-B-C dot com. Have a great day.